And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Acts chapter 2, verse 40. Hey everybody, I'm Chris Dowd. And I'm Reagan Gilliland. And this is Off Script, the podcast where every week we take a deeper dive on last Sunday's sermon, talk about the theology behind it, and get a chance to discuss anything that ended up on the cutting room floor. We are right smack dab in the middle of our Easter season sermon series yeah. called Faith Matters. Faith Matters, <laughs> question mark. This is, uh, I guess, uh, week three Yes. of this particular series. Yeah. And I'm loving this series, but I have to say, like, I want to keep reading more about these theologians, and I don't have enough time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are just doing a very brief introduction yeah, to these folks. For sure. And so I'm hoping people can maybe at least, you know, get connected to at least one right. and kind of dive a little bit deeper right, right. than that. And, you know, we we very intentionally wanted a diversity of voices. Mm-hmm. So we had the, the earliest church theologian, mm-hmm. so kind of your very orthodox theologian. And then last week we had a an abolitionist and a, a woman's rights advocate mm-hmm. um, in Lucretia Mott. Today we're talking about James Cone. Very excited about this. Uh, next week we're talking about Elaine Heath. Oh, I think you and I both had it seminary yeah. in, at Perkins. Uh, and then we're going to end with Francis and Claire. So we've got the perfect balance of men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a person of color today. Mm-hmm. We have a very contemporary person, local even, or was for a while. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's, with 2,000 years of tradition, there's lots of folks we could talk about. For sure. And we wanted to stay away from the obvious, the ones like our go-tos, you know what I mean? Yeah. So. Yeah, it's been been a good spiritual practice for me to to read some people I don't normally, and just finding out people I'd never heard of, Lucretia Mott, I'd never heard of her yeah yeah major shout out stephanie for finding her yeah that was a good good get um okay so just to recap uh the first week we talked about common humanity last week we talked about common problem today's common solution and so i want to talk about why we settled on that order i mean i I mean i kind of know but why do you think people sometimes go ahead and just okay let's talk about the solution (laughs) and why that's not helpful um you know, I, it's it's fine to start with a solution. You know, I'm a big fan of Jesus. Yes. <laughs> he, he is the solution. He, he is the alpha and the omega at the beginning and the end. And so that would be fine. Um, the, but the reason we laid it out like this, you know, the, the theme, there, there are several themes, but one uh, important thing for me in this series was to talk about our, our commonality, like what, mm-hmm. what we have in common for obvious reasons. You know, for the we're in, we live in a very divisive age. We live in a very divisive, like kind of moment in this age, and uh, there's plenty of things that can divide us. And so, I felt like uh, starting with uh, our common humanity was week one. Like our w- the fact that we are all created in the image and likeness of God, I think was an important starting place. Now, systematically, like if you if we were doing um, our credo in systematic theology, mm-hmm. so if for, so the credo, I should explain, is a 30-page summary of your faith that you write at the end of your year in systematic theology. So it's probably the most important thing you do in seminary, honestly. Yes. Because it's the, it's the way that you make sense of this vast narrative that we have as Christians. Um, 
it's good to start with God. <laughs> so much do, say, yeah. When you do that, right? So you, um, you would, in, in the credo, you know, you would, like, as you're thinking through systematically, you start with your theology of God. Um, so what we're talking about today, which is salvation, the fancy word for that theologically is soteriology. That doesn't come until later systematically either. So um, we kind of skipped over our theology of God because, you know, I think, first of all, the emphasis of this series really is on what we share, what we have in common. Yeah. And common is the word in all the mm-hmm. t- sermon titles for me. Um, so and I think we can make some, I think it, like the intended audience for this shares a pretty common language around God. Yeah. Specifically. Okay. But it's never, I mean, it's never wrong to start with Jesus. It's never, it's never problematic. Um, but you know, I, grace ain't that amazing if <laughs> if it's not solving a problem. Yeah. Right. I mean, in my opinion. So, right. I just think some people, um, kind of that uh, random evangelism sometimes is like, well, you just need to, you just need to be saved. And mm. like, they don't want to address anything. Mm. It's that quick solution or like, let's, you know, let's not talk about anything deep. Let's just <laughs> put a bandaid on it sometimes. Yeah. So that's where, that's why I'm really glad we covered stuff first, because I think end up, you realize how much you need that redemption and mm-hmm. that salvation because mm-hmm. you've like unpacked like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> yeah, I need some help. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what year did you write your, what year, what is your credo then? Do you know? Uh, it would have been in 2006. Okay. Do you ever go back over it? Um, or do you have a copy of it? Mm. <laughs> so I, <laughs> um, I got a hundred on my credo. Of course you did. And it was, it was graded by both Billy Abraham and Karen Baker Fletcher, who are okay. very different theologians. Yes. And I'm, like, it was so important to me to get down the meaning of the cross in particular, mm-hmm. like atonement, to get to get straight in my head what I believed about atonement. Uh, and I, I, like, I became a Methodist at Arapahoe United Methodist Church, um, which is where Jack Soper is was the pastor, and um, he always thought theologically. Like his big thing was biblical theology, and we always talked theology. He and I privately talked theology. It was an it was a very kind of intellectual um, oh, for sure. church, and uh, so much of Bible study and preaching for me is uh, that teaching mode. Like even in my Bible studies, I very rarely I, I'm not a turn to your neighbor and talk kind of mm-hmm. teacher. Right, I'm more of a lecture yeah. kind of teacher, and that my my preaching style is the same way. Because I think having our theology straight is so important. And so all of that is by way of saying um, that in some ways I revisit my credo every week. <laughs> like, uh, Because to me, whatever we're talking about in the context of how we live as disciples has to be se- seen through our theology. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I love series like this. They can, they, they can be a little bit academic, but I, I think it's also relevant. Um because it helps us think through exactly what it is that we believe and how that affects how we live. Yeah. How about you? Uh, I don't know if I've run, let's see. So my credo was more recent, but I'd be curious to go back and just see like, even if I agree with it, like to see how I've evolved or mm-hmm. maybe changed. I don't know if they talked about that. If in class, like your credo will change. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. remember if they talked about 
that. I don't know. Do you remember? Um, you know, I, well, so I was older when I went to seminary and had spent some time in different traditions. To me, it was, um, I, I approached my credo like it was going to be the thing that shaped the rest of my ministry. Yeah. And so, and I structured it uh, on the Nicene Creed because I was raised Catholic and that was the creed where I was used in church. And I wanted to go back and revisit that thing that I knew by heart, <laughs> but how I understood it through my Methodist uh, theology now. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think how, like on social issues, things might evolve, but yeah. in terms of the core of what I believe about who God is and how God shows up in the world, I, I would be shocked if that changed all that much yeah. um, over the years. I'm trying to think. I, you know, people get really creative with their credo. And I think mine was like I compared all the things to like a church potluck or something. I think Jesus was like the the role because like you have to have the like the role. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I haven't read it in forever. I pro- uh-huh. I'd be kind of scared to go back like, oh, this is terrible. Huh. Um, I remember Scott's. Dr. Abraham was like, this is one of the best, you know, went on and on about Scott's. Yeah. So I'm like, cool. Second best after mine. <laughs> yeah, totally. He's like, not as good as Chris Dowd's. Not quite as good as Dowd's. But. Yeah. <laughs> but I just remember like, it just went on and on. I was like, oh, look at you. Anyway, good for him. Anyway. <laughs> um, but I'm just curious. Okay. Well, and you know, I had the, uh, really the honor of like reading your paperwork and Scott's both when you came through the board and yeah. you, you show up differently, Yeah. but it's, it's equally excellent theology. You know what I mean? Scott kind of writes in a similar style to me, I think, a yeah. little bit. Um, and you're more, I mean, I, more I'm, not, conversational. I'm not trying to hurt Scott's feelings, but yeah. you're more creative, you know, in terms of how you uh, put all that together. So uh, Malcolm Gladwell says one of his rules for life, by the way, is make is if you're hosting a dinner party, make twice the rolls you think you should. Yeah. Because everyone loves rolls. That's true. So Jesus has the dinner rolls. Pretty good. I know. I pretty thought solid. it was pretty good. Carbs are awesome. Uh, was there green bean salad? I don't think that's so. that's nasty. I know. I don't think okay. so. <laughs> Our producer's like, come on now. Wait, so green bean salad. You're a fan it's of green bean salad? It's not salad, it's casserole. Casserole, casserole salad, whatever. So yeah. with the cream and mushroom soup and all We've, that? We talked about this at Thanksgiving. Mm. Yeah, I am the lone green bean casserole lover. <laughs> but it's all right. Do I you, also add cheddar cheese to it and you crispy you, jalapenos. Interesting. Do you at least so. use the French style for green beans oh yeah because a big chunky ones i'm like what no, are you all no, doing no, no. But they're like neon green <laughs> no blake blake changed me on the french style green beans okay. i did not grow up with the french style. okay beans. interesting okay. so too fancy for our blood like out of the can oh yeah huh uh-huh. and do you do what about the onion things on top oh yeah so i do the crispy onions but i mm. also with now, jalapenos they french's now makes crispy jalapeno bits interesting man delicious huh but everything should be spicy, in my opinion. <laughs> but with cheddar cheese. Yeah, that's my family's thing. I didn't know Sheesh. that was weird until I moved. Huh. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So, in theology, then, the so systematic theology, what would, in the, if it's a potluck, mm-hmm. what would green bean casserole be? What's the thing that people don't like about themselves that they have to acknowledge? <laughs> repentance? Is <laughs> it the repentance of systematic theology? Maybe. <laughs> Possibly. Or yours would be like the cranberry jello probably right would be the oh, yeah. you know you, listen you it's really, fresh cranberries i know but the canned stuff you would that's say that's garbage. terrible so you'd that say is that was garbage like you, uh, we got to revisit this this coming <laughs> we'll, we'll come back around to this we got it we got it uh, okay so let's go ahead and talk about um the terms like being saved and yep. salvation yep, yep, yep. difference how do people misunderstand them 
all that. Uh, so, okay. So salvation is just, it's a very churchy word. And I yeah. use that phrase in the sermon yeah. because it can kind of, it can turn people off. It just means healing. Okay. Right. So the, the concept of, um, like theologically speaking, the fancy word is soteriology. So how is it that we are, um, reconciled in our relationship with God, re- restored in our relationship with God? That's what salvation is. Um, the language around saved is a little loaded mm-hmm. <laughs> because of the way some traditions use it and the way some people experience that. So what I talked about in the sermon was, um, you know, as a Methodist um, youth minister, every once in a while, and I would say it was annually, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. some some youth or a group of youth would uh, come to me with this anxious question, <laughs> not knowing if they were quote unquote saved. Yeah. Very funny movie, by the way. Have you seen the movie Saved? I am filled yes. with the body of Christ. And she throws, throws the, the Bible. Bible. Oh, it's such a great scene. <laughs> That's Mandy Moore, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like for some traditions, salvation is all about what Paul would call justification, which is that moment when we are forgiven and restored in our relationship with God. Is it a one-time uh, well, for some traditions it is. Okay. So for some traditions it's once saved, always saved. Mm-hmm. And it really is all about that moment yeah. when you ex- accept Christ or come to Christ. I mean, all that kind of mm-hmm. language, um, which we believe too, but we just don't focus it on that moment of justification. In Methodist theology, uh, justification is just the beginning. <laughs> yes. It's the rest of the journey that really demands our attention. <laughs> And it's the rest of the journey. So in uh, the way, like systematically, we think about this is justification is the work of Christ on the cross where we're restored in our relationship with God. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit within us, transforming us the rest of our lives mm-hmm. as we grow in love for God and our fellow human beings. The way the metaphor Wesley used, which I think is very, I find very helpful, is if our if the spiritual journey is a house, then... The porch, the front porch, mm-hmm. is the prevenient grace. That's where Jesus, like think of the old song, Softly and Tenderly, Jesus is Calling. Like we're invited into a relationship with God throughout our lives. The moment we um, accept accept uh, Christ, accept the grace of God, say yes to God. I mean, there's a lot mm-hmm. of ways to think about this. That's when we walk through the door. And justification is the doorway to the house, Correct. like the beginning of the journey. Yeah. And then the rest of our lives is we're exploring the house. That's salvation. I mean, that's uh, sanctification. Yeah. And the ultimate goal is for for Methodists is Christ, Christian perfection. So that's perfect love of God and our fellow human beings that Wesley believed we could attain in glimpses. The only people for whom justification is the highlight is people who accept Jesus on their deathbed. <laughs> so the thief on the cross, for example, right? He had no more work to do Okay. because he was going to be that day with Christ in paradise, according yes. to Luke. Um, but for everybody else, <laughs> it's, it's about the transformation of our, of our perspective, of our um, inclination towards others. Like it's, a, it's about a, like uh, justification is a relative change. Before we were guilty, no, now we're no longer guilty. Sanctification is a real change within us. Mm-hmm. So for us... It's not, the question is not, are you saved? Because mm-hmm. the answer to that is yes. <laughs> if you were baptized into the church and you ha- and your faith is in Christ, and there's a whole what about other religions conversation, we've got to kind of bracket. Yeah. 
Um, the question is, you're saved for what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, and you're saved in order to, like in, uh, in the Old Testament, Abraham is blessed to be a blessing. Mm-hmm. So for us, it's we're saved to be the body of Christ in the world. And that's the work of transformation. And that's why what we do matters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's our response to God's grace that is uh, the measure of Christian living. Okay. What about when, did you have youth sometimes say like, I got saved again? <laughs> like, I, I got saved at camp again? <laughs> yeah. There's that. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, like, well, That's need- a whole conversation about what camp you send your kids to. Right. Or like, well, I need to get baptized again because <laughs> it didn't work the first time. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, and that, this is where your theology really matters. Mm-hmm. We don't do rebaptism because baptism is not about us. Mm-hmm. Baptism is about the work of God. God doesn't screw things up. Right. You can remember it. You can remember it. Sure. But we don't do it again. No. Yeah. It's like, well, that wasn't good enough, God. So let's try this again, God. <laughs> like, and, you know, there's another whole strain of Christian theology where uh, for for some people early on, <clears throat> there was it was believed that the, if the priest, if the clergy person was flawed then communion and baptism weren't any good oh <laughs> that's called uh what's that heresy called um i'm i'm not quite brushed up on okay. all of my heresies, all your heresies. <laughs> but that's a <laughs> that's a heresy of the early church the notion that if the priest is out of faith or whatever that your baptism and communion don't count wow. and that's garbage because it's for us uh it's about uh, for sac- you know sacraments are the work of god in our lives yeah Okay, so just to be clear, do Methodists believe once saved, always we saved? We do not. Okay. Can you, I don't know if you unpack, can you just say a little bit more about that? Yeah. So there's a big difference between Calvinism and what's called Arminianism. So Wesleyans are Arminian, which means that uh, we place a strong emphasis on free will. Calvinism places a strong emphasis on the sovereignty of God. And this is why when we talk about God's plan, uh, God's will. That's really, we got to be very nuanced in how we talk about that. So, I mean, <laughs> Billy Abraham, who I've <laughs> now mentioned a couple times, uh, who's now Dean at Truett down at, uh, at Baylor. I love Billy dearly. Um, he, he quoted some other theologian in saying, not only do Methodists believe in backsliding, but we practice it with gusto. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's fact. <laughs> Which means like, um, to be, here's the way I make sense of this. To be not saved, I'm using air quotes here. Okay. You have to consciously choose to believe that Christ is not who he said he is. Like you have to con- consciously say, I no longer have faith in Jesus. Yes. But we believe because of free will, you have the power to do that. I mean, that's what it means to be in a relationship. Short of that, um, backsliding is when we're, you know, if you think of, um, uh, think of the Christian journey as a walk along the path that God has for us. Not that God walks for us, but that God intends for us, which is to be in love with God and neighbor. You can stray from the path. I mean, mm-hmm. you can do stuff you really shouldn't be doing. You can be hateful and you can mm-hmm. walk away from church for a while and all that kind of stuff. Um, that doesn't mean you don't have faith in Christ anymore. But uh, we do believe that you have the power to choose not faith. You know, mm-hmm. Whereas... A Calvinist and um, most Baptist theology, for example, falls into, would fall into this category that um, that the sovereignty of God is so strong that once you make a faith profession, you can never lose it. 
Mm-hmm. For us, that minimizes the power of free will. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and you really miss out on that. The wonderful part is being transformed, mm-hmm. and I can do. Some, I can make a. I can say yes, but then am I really any different the next day? Mm-hmm. And so that's why I love the emphasis on the sanctification. Mm-hmm. Like, it's nice to have something. Not that we're like we're working towards this. I mean, you're kind of working towards this goal, but it's. I mean, it really changes your life. It does entirely change the way you approach life. Yeah. Okay. It's real, that's what, this is why theology matters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, what I would say is that, quote unquote, being saved, the cross is only part of that story. Okay. <laughs> the cross is one day of that narrative. Yeah. In the incarnation, like God becoming a human being, he had this whole ministry where he healed, did miracles, taught us how to live. And then, yeah. The empire killed him, but, and then God rose, it's in the narrative of Christ's life, in the gospels, the cross is not the centerpiece of the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, I would say it's the inevitable outcome of proclaiming love the way he did. And because God is omniscient, God certainly knew that was the way it was going to end, but not because that's the way it had to end. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a result of our own sin, which gets us to Cone. Uh, Cone for Cone, God is in solidarity with those who suffer because God, God's self suffered. It's a powerful. Mm-hmm. That's a powerful notion. Yeah, he is. The book we referenced is "The Cross and the Lynching Tree," um, which I would certainly recommend. It's. Uh, it's not easy to read. I mean, you read some of the de- some of the gruesome details of what white supremacists did to black people during the lynching era. They call it that. Um, he's not saying that those people are like are Jesus. Okay. <laughs> he's saying that Jesus shared the suffering of folk like that. Okay. And therefore, the body of Christ in the world—you, me, Ashley, all the rest of us have to care about that. <laughs> yeah. Our cru- we worship a crucified Lord. When people are crucified because of human sin, we've got to care about that and do what we can to stop that. Okay. That's his argument. And it's a really powerful argument. Um so I'm sure there's other stuff we're going to get into but <laughs> Yeah, so uh you talk about so this James Cone, this was the book, The Cross and Lynching Tree, sat on your shelf. So I'm just curious, uh, what books do you have on your shelf that you're waiting to read? <laughs> so your experience as a pastor, I'm sure, is the same as mine. As mine. Mm-hmm. Lots of people like to give us books. Yes. Pastor, you got to read this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and there's the pile of books <laughs> that people think I need to read. Um. And sometimes it's stuff I don't want to read, like The Shack. I got a whole hot sports opinion about that. Um, my little brother, for example, for Christmas, gave me a Reinhold Niebuhr book, okay. um, Children of Light and Children of Darkness, which I certainly will read. I love Niebuhr. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Cone, there's a strong connection between Cone and Niebuhr. Oh, okay. Um, I've got Adam Hamilton sent me a book, his newest book. Okay. 
I feel very special about this. I'm sure it's just based on, you know, pastors of churches of a certain size or whatever. <laughs> but it's Words of Life book, which looks great. Alan, Adam's fantastic. Um, I've got a book that former members gave me about, uh, written by an admiral, a Navy admiral. Mm -hmm. who, uh, that's kind of a leadership book, which looks fascinating. I'm anxious to read that. I've got a book. On, I've got another book by Desmond Tutu that I bought when we were doing the uh, book of joy. book of joy. Yeah. Uh, that I want to read. Like, I can't. We don't have time to go through all the yeah. books. How about you? You got stuff that's like, oh my gosh, I got to read this next. Uh, I have a bunch of leadership books, and then um, I want to read. I'm trying to read some bo uh, books on how to raise boys. So I've got how to uh -huh. raise boys. I still need to read the book of longings. I still haven't read, I've got Just Mercy on my mm. nightstand. Um, what else is on my list? The, I think those are like the three that are like mm -hmm. right on my nightstand right now. Yeah, the the next one, so in the, in the sermon I mentioned this. So, you know, coming out, every year I try to focus on a particular thing and the, theologically. And so this year, I was actually going to uh, focus on, um, what was I going to do this year? Uh Maybe C.S. Lewis, just because I like his writing style. Mm -hmm. But after all that happened last year, I decided to uh, read Authors of Color. Yeah. So I'm reading Jamar Tisby's How to Fight Racism yeah. right now, which I really like. Yeah. That's what I really Notre like. Notre Dame grad. Correct. Um, so Cone was on there. Uh, I've got a book by Howard Thurman called Jesus and the Disinherited. Mm-hmm. I'm listening right now to Where Do We Go From Here, which was the last book that MLK wrote. It was published posthumously um, after white supremacists murdered him. Mm -hmm. It's a whole, get me to preaching on that. Um, I'm reading, so, and I always like to be reading a, a fiction book. And so I'm reading Ralph Ellison's The Invisible Man, which okay. is, uh, Ellison was a um, kind of mid 20th century uh very prominent black author. He He's a contemporary with Richard Wright, whose book Native Son I read when I was in high school and it totally sh kind of shaped a trajectory for me in terms of what I care about. Um, and Cohn was recommended by, I mentioned this in the sermon, uh, a black colleague of ours uh, down in Dallas who said it was one of the most important books he ever read. And I thought, hmm, hmm. I probably need a copy of that. Yeah. And so I bought it, and it sat on my shelf, as I mentioned, for several years, just be not because I wasn't interested in it, but because, um, I mean, I'll just be honest, the cross is not my favorite subject. It's not my emphasis. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not among the crucified peoples. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, I'm a upper middle class white guy. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't resonate with the cross in the same way that a theologian like James Cone does. And so... Um, it was just really, really, really good. Um, he, so he, he talks about his basic, he's a, he's a pioneer of black liberation theology. And uh, his early books were in the late 60s, so kind of at, towards the tail end of what we would consider the civil rights movement, while there was, you know, there's still quite a bit of turmoil. Um, so his, his first book is Black Theology and Black Power. It came out in 69, but he started, he started work on it right after MLK's assassination. Okay. And and he had um, he's done a fair amount of work comparing the theology of Malcolm X and Martin and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. and I mean it's the title like Malcolm and Martin and something something um, but he's thoroughly Methodist um, and he 
so he comes at this uh, like theology from a Methodist perspective. He's speaking language I can resonate with. Yeah, it's not always the case. You know, we're reading these other theologians, and you kind of got to reinterpret it. Like Lucretia Mott last week was Quaker theology, which is beautiful, but it's not my theology, and so I've you know I kind of got to make my internal like inner light means <laughs> imago dei, right? Yeah, you don't have to do that with Cone, and so what he does. Uh, this was written in 2011. So his first book was in 60 published, published in 69 sets the trajectory for black deliberation theology for the rest of his career. And so 2011 is kind of, is almost a valedictory. It's almost him looking back on all of his work and he's just tremendously influential. Like he's, he is required reading for Methodist pastors, usually in excerpts and kind of summaries of his theology, unless you take a deep dive on that particular strain of liberation theology, which i Again, I don't resonate with, but I need to read more of yeah. because I don't resonate with it, right? Correct, yeah. So um, he he has a whole chapter where he kind of uh, deconstructs, dissects the theology of Reinhold Niebuhr, who's a theo- theolo- probably my favorite contemporary theologian. Um, brilliant and poetic when talking about the cross, but had this massive blind spot when it came to white supremacy. I mean, and he shouldn't have. Uh, and then he does a whole chapter on MLK's theology, which, you know, MLK's been a hero of mine for as long as I've been alive, really, more so as a become a pastor. Um, and then he does a whole analysis of black cultural um, expressions, like blues, specifically Billie Holiday's song, Strange Fruit. So Strange Fruit is her most famous work, and it's about black bodies hanging on lynching trees. Yeah. Uh, Lover's Lane, they did this creative musical Monday, Thursday, and we would sing Strange Fruit yeah. in it. I didn't yeah. know that. And the lyrics were written by an Anglo Jew <laughs> during the 1930s. Wow. Who, who, in his own experience of, not, like, of Nazi Germany, saw this connection <laughs> to... American treatment of blacks in the South. Wow. I mean, like incredibly, incredibly powerful. Yeah. And then he does a whole thing with African-American spirituals. And so I I just, it's, I think I have not written, I have not read his earlier books. So I don't know if they're necessarily as accessible or, I mean, I experienced it as a, as a gentle expression Mm -hmm. of what is kind of a radical theology or would be considered by many to be radical theology. And I don't know if his earlier work would be maybe less gentle, um, but I, it was just really, really powerful. Like So much so that I would do a book study on it if, okay. if people were interested in, in reading it. But if, if anybody's interested in reading it, I would just, like I would do the disclaimer mm-hmm. that there's some stuff in there that's really, really hard to read. Okay. I checked out his Risk of Faith uh, let's see i think it was published in 99 so just to get a little bit familiar so it's good mm-hmm. so yeah i'm just trying to get familiar with it is really good to challenge yourself with just a different theology kind of or just a different language or perspective it's it's been really beneficial um okay so obviously james cone has a very uh specific idea of of kind of the cross what it symbolizes and so i was curious what do you think an average churchgoer when they what do they think the cross symbolizes or means, or maybe someone outside the church? So 
So this is like this. We're, I'm going back to my credo now. Okay. Like this is the thing that I, I really needed to get clear on my head. What did I believe about the cross? I think that, I'm going to put it this way. I think far too much of Protestant American theology is about what God has done for me. Mm. Me personally. Yeah. And and we express it that way as a as a expression of gratitude. Like sure. God cared enough about me that God went to the cross for me. This is the this is a lot, a lot of the times how you'll hear it expressed. And I just I think that overemphasizes me mm-hmm. for one thing. And undersells like the grandeur of what God did. Um, you know, I think a lot of, for a lot of folks, you know, raised on kind of evangelical hymns from the 1700s and 1800s, um, a lot of people think that this was, that God sent Jesus to die, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, how great thou art, that's a verse and how great thou art. I love how great thou art, but I don't believe that. I don't believe that God sent Jesus to die. Okay. (laughs) So say more about that. So. I believe that God, what God came to do is to reconcile the world to God's self and was willing to proclaim a gospel of love and peace and mercy and I'm going to say inclusion that the world simply could not abide. Both the religious leaders of his own tradition who had way too much to lose and the state that was having none of it. And um, what Cone does in the book is talk very honestly about the, the cross was an instrument of terror for the mm-hmm. Romans, right? I mean, right. it was a, um, it was a weapon intended to send a message to them. You don't mess with us. Mm-hmm. You have no power over us. This is what we will do to you. If you cross us, which is why Jesus went to the cross. He went, to, I mean, you know, that's the, it was a, an instrument of torture kind of reserved for insurrectionists and bandits and, not for saying you're God, <laughs> right? That's not. Yeah. So, um, I, I think for me, the atonement is about the entire incarnation with the cross being an important part of it that we need to, uh, that we need to address and deal with. But, but in, in Acts and in Luke, and I, there's a lot of people just don't understand this the bible is not univocal on what the meaning of the cross is it's not and it's not about god sending jesus to die that like these are later atonement theories that are used to make sense of what is ultimately a mystery that none of us can fully understand Mm -hmm. and so uh, in acts and in luke it is the result of sin period you killed him jesus uh, god raised him like that's the that's the equation. And the response should be repentance, baptism, and the Holy Spirit transforming us. <laughs> Acts is all about the Holy Spirit. All about the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And you can make a case that Luke acts, because Luke also wrote Acts. I mean, the Holy Spirit announces his birth. The Holy Spirit's with him in his baptism. Like the, the Holy Spirit is the is a through line through the whole two volume work. So um I think I think most people have a very limited view of what the cross is all about. Yeah. And I think that's to the detriment of our spiritual growth and, and what we're called to do and who we're called to be. And I get why. I mean, there are moments in our lives, I guess, 
when it's helpful to think, gosh, God was willing to do that for me. But it's bigger than that. God yeah. was willing to become one of us and go through this beautiful and tragic and difficult and bloody and messy life that we all go through yeah. in order to reconcile us to God. Like that, the incarnation is where it's at mm-hmm. for me. Um, and so I'm, I'm doing a uh, study right now with Richard Rohr, uh, the Center for Act- Action and Contemplation on the Franciscan way. I've always been drawn to St. Francis. Actually, and we're going to end with St. Francis in a couple of weeks. And for Francis, it, the, it was about the incarnation. It wasn't about the crucifixion. The crucifixion is part of it. Like I'm not minimizing the cross. No, I'm not no, minimizing Good Friday. I wear a cross. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I really am. I'm very Catholic for heaven's sake. I'm not minimizing the cross. <laughs> but it's not. We just, I think it's overemphasized. Okay. And it's, I think it's misunderstood. Yeah. And I think the cross says a whole lot more about us <laughs> than it does about God, frankly. Okay. No, that's good. Um, okay. That's good stuff. Okay. There's a quote that I really love uh, that Cohn says. It starts with the real scandal. Yeah. I think that's like your last page. Can you read that? Yeah. Kind of talk about that. Yeah, man. So the, the, well, let me, so I, I, I lifted two quotes from the book. The first one kind of sets the stage for liberation theology in general. So, uh, and of course got these footnoted in my manuscript. I know his, (laughs) his sermons are so tidy. And then I send him mine. I'm like, sorry, there's lots of typos. (laughs) And this is towards the end of the book. So he's done all of his exploration and it's in, it's in his summary, his conclusion paragraph. He says that the cross is the most empowering symbol, the most empowering symbol, yeah. empowering symbol of God's loving solidarity with the quote unquote least of these. That's a quote from Matthew 25. The unwanted in society who suffer daily from great injustices. So for those who suffer injustice, the cross is a symbol of empowerment. Mm. I mean, there is a reason that I don't resonate as much with the cross as I do with the empty tomb is what is the conclusion I came to for my own spiritual journey in in this book. I tend to minimize the cross, like not minimize it. I tend to underemphasize it in my understanding of redemption. Okay. It's an important part of the story, but it's only part of the story. But if I'm one of the people on the cross, (laughs) if I'm one of the people who suffers violence because of human sin, that's yeah. the that's the equation that I made in the sermon. So the the cross is the result of hatred and bigotry and fear and violence of humanity, as is lynching some seventeen year old because he whistled at your girlfriend, mm-hmm. right? Right. Emmett Till. Why we can start with the whole oh, discussion Emmett Till. Right. Right. So that it's not that Emmett Till is Jesus. It's that Jesus suffered the same at the at the hands of the same kind of sin as Emmett Till. Mm-hmm. And and for Emmett Till's community, for Emmett Till's mother, the cross is a symbol of like, oh my gosh, God went through this too. That's how yeah. much God loves me, that God was willing to do endure what my community has to endure. Yes. I mean, that is incredibly, that's, it, empowering is the right word. Mm-hmm. So then the the later quote, which actually comes from earlier in the book, the real scandal of the gospel is this, humanity's salvation scandal the real scandal of the gospel yeah. is this and that's a biblical word i mean so paul talks about the scandal of the cross mm-hmm. right the real scandal of the gospel is this humanity's salvation is revealed in the cross of the condemned criminal jesus 
he was condemned by the law. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Law ain't always right. Nope. The state ain't always right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the condemned criminal Jesus and humanity's salvation, and this is where I actually nuanced him a little bit, but okay. he says humanity's salvation is available only through our solidarity with the crucified people in our midst. That is powerful. Yeah. Now, I mean, let's be real. So as a, as a upper middle class, middle-aged white guy, I'm like, what do you mean only available? Like I, I, what about me? <laughs> what about me? Jesus died for me too. Right. That's right? Like, uh, I mean, yeah. it's true. That's true. So, but I think for us to be able to hear that, I, the way I said it was um, that so our salvation is lived out in solidarity yes. with and care for he says the crucified people in our midst, but to get people past the whatever distractions that might have for them, um, for those who suffer at the hands of human sin. If I don't care about that, I am not fully living into the redemption offered to me in Jesus. That's the point. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I just believe that. I mean, <laughs> I just believe that that's true. Does that mean I'm going to hell if I don't, if I don't care? No, I don't believe that. I believe that my salvation's and like my you know my eternal destiny is secure because of my faith in Christ. I do believe that. But by God, there's that comes with some expectations. Yeah. <laughs> and and one of those expectations is that I can see connections between those who suffer at the hands of human sin, like, and that list is long. Mm-hmm. So the transgender kid who gets beat up because he's he, because of that, their yeah. identity and, and, and society's unwillingness to accept that that's who that person is. Um, women who suffer at the hands of an abusive partner. I mean, clearly anyone who's, uh, suffering racial violence or, or discrimination, like yeah. it is like, I don't know, this is just kind of a self evident part of the gospel to me. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we need to hear it from a prophet who I'm not going to pull, pull any punches. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, to me, the cross and the lynching tree is uh, the like, almost the valedictory reflection of somebody who's been in that fight for a long time and is and is trying to uh, preach this message in a way that people can hear. Um, and it's really really brilliant mm-hmm. oh that's good stuff all right is there anything else you want to say action <laughs> call so what you know we just <laughs> sorry reagan i feel like i've been preaching at you for no 20 minutes <laughs> no it's it's so good <laughs> it is good it's really really good it's really good there are some authors that uh are harder for me to read mm-hmm. because i'll get defensive about it uh there are authors that um you know, like there are people I follow on Twitter and half of their stuff is like, eh, mm-hmm. I'm not sharing that with anybody. So who are some, I know we talked about some earlier, but like, what are some, especially people of color, what are some voices you think recommendations for our listeners? <laughs> I think it depends on your tolerance for being challenged. Okay. Honestly. Um, so, I mean, you and I just kind of co-led a, a book study um, from Ibram Kendi mm-hmm. on how to be an anti-racist. And uh, I'm kind of hot and cold. 
on yeah. him, as you know. Yeah, me too. Um, uh, he is now on staff at Boston University. Um, and, uh, you know, our, our more conservative listeners would are going to have a hard time with that because he's, I mean, he's um, like this phrase critical race theory is in the mm-hmm. air right now. And yeah. there's a whole lot of partisanship around that. Um, so, but if you are open to being challenged, um, then he would be somebody to, to read. Jamar Tisby, I haven't read the book that you got us, mm-hmm. but I plan to. Um, there's uh, Latasha Morrison. Yeah. Uh, has a book called Be the Bridge. My wife's doing that in their Sunday school class right now. And I think that's um, maybe a little less confrontational mm-hmm. than Kendi's style. Yeah. Um, so the... A really important voice earlier than Cone is Howard Thurman, yeah, who was at BU, and uh, his book uh, "Jesus and the Disinherited" is one that's the next one I'm reading, okay. and it was one that inspired MLK. I mean, he MLK carried a copy of that around, um, and he, Thurman was his mentor at BU. Okay, um, MLK is always good to read. I think. People tend to consume him in sound bites and quotes. Yep. I'm listening to Where Do We Go From Here? And um, that's less sound bite-ish. I mean, it's pretty. <laughs> Wish you could see Chris's face right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm listening to it on um, on audiobook. And uh, I, I just, I, I find myself being startled. I mean, I, I know his life really well. I've read um, Let the Trumpet Sound uh, twice all the way through, which is a biography of him that I would highly recommend. Um, and then honestly, I think, uh, I think fiction by black authors is, is pretty important. If any, if no one's read, uh, native son by Richard Wright, or, um, I think his other, I think his kind of overtly autobiographical one is black boy, beautiful black boy, something like that. Anyway, Richard Wright is a contemporary of Ralph Ellison, who I'm reading the invisible man. Uh, it's great. Anything by Alice Walker is worth reading. <laughs> um, so, how about? You know, in, am I missing some? I was um, I was gonna add like a couple of female Lisa Sharon Harper. Uh, yeah, Aust- thank you for that. I've got a blind spot there too. No, okay. Uh, Austin Channing Brown. Those are the main ones. Yeah, I think. Uh, and um, I always end up talking about Whitney, but she she follows them and it's frequently shares with me stuff that yeah. they post and, and write. Uh, so I think to me, the biggest, if people really want to engage with the black experience, you just have to be willing to set aside knee jerk defensiveness. You just have to, yeah, because some of the, some authors are going to just have a more confrontational style and are going to be less gentle about their perspective. And I, that's okay. <laughs> it doesn't mean you have to agree with all of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't mean that you come away thinking that you totally buy their argument in its entirety. Um, but you know, hearing those other voices is really important. And if we're, uh, if we're going to, to grow, if we're really going to live in community and celebrate our common humanity, recognizing that we all have a common problem and a common solution, then um, our willingness to engage in a non-defensive way is really important. So, yeah. and, the, and if we can develop those skills now, mm-hmm. <laughs> next year, and when we get to general conference and we start talking about LGBTQ issues and how the church is going to live into its life in the next generation, that it'll be helpful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but no, thank you for the, I just think this sermon is really good. I think it is really important. I'm excited to see how people expand their view of the cross and have different, I mean, it is, it is really good to have a deep understanding of these foundations. I know we've said this over and over again, but, um, I don't know. I think it's, this could be really transformational for us. All right, y'all. Thank you for listening. We are always happy to engage. Re- emails can go to Reagan at cumc.com. <laughs> R-A-E-G-A-N or Chris at cumc.com. Next week, we'll be talking about our common home. Uh, so community, which will be a, a great uh, subject. So thanks for spending an hour or so with us, 45 minutes, however long Ashley ends up making this uh, podcast. <laughs> and we will see you again in spirit. How, how do we decide our sign-off is going to be? Remind me. Uh over the airways and in person or online and through the internet <laughs> the miracle of the internet I, I love through the internet <laughs> i think there's so many options there all right thanks y'all god bless thanks for joining us for this episode off script it was hosted by reverend chris dowd and reverend reagan gilland produced by ashley danner as a part of the christ united podcast ministries You can visit cumc.com backslash podcasts in order to see all of the series we have available. Like, subscribe, and follow us so that you don't miss a single episode. Thank you for supporting us. Have a great week.